story before, and so you're going to have to forgive me if I have. Uh, but years ago, I was an intern at a church in western Michigan, and while I was there, unexpectedly, the church um, split. Okay, If you don't know that term, it's when uh, there is a disagreement in the church, and part of the church will leave, uh, typically to a different church, or they'll start a new church. But unexpectedly, uh, nobody really saw it coming. There was a church split, and unfortunately, the group that left took the vast majority of the finances with them. Now, the pastor at the time did what he could to make it work, but the reality was uh, the, he was, him and his family were not going to be able to survive on what the church, the little the church had left uh, to pay him. And I remember sitting with him, we were inside the church, we were working on the church's basketball hoop, that uh, uh, some repairs uh, being made, and we just kind of sat there and talked, and he had come to the conclusion that he was going to have to find a job. Now the challenge was going to be finding a job that was not going to interfere with him being a pastor. Now if you've ever uh, asked a bivocational pastor, some, uh, somebody who pastors a church and has a full-time job, or ever talked to a church planter, a pastor who's trying to start a new church, trying to pastor and have a full-time job is a very, very difficult, almost impossible thing to do. But this is what he was going to have to do, and so he began to pray and ask that God would provide him a job that would not interfere uh, with being a pastor. A few days later, after that conversation, he called me up and said, you've got to come over to the church. I have to tell you a story you simply will not believe. You see, that day he had gone to a job interview at a a box-making factory. It was in the hometown there, and the owner of the company just happened to be in that day and decided to do the interview. He kidded with him at first. He said, look, you've got no earrings. You've got no tattoos. He said, I'm almost ready to hire you now. But he said they sat there and they talked for about an hour. They had never really met each other before. He shared a lot of interest. And after the interview was over, the owner of the company stood up, shook his hand and says, you're hired. He said, but you already have a job. And he began to explain to him that he was going to take this pastor friend of mine on as an employee, but he better never show up for work. He said, said, what I'm going to do, he says, every two weeks, I'm going to send you a paycheck like you worked a 40-hour week here, but I don't ever want to see you on the factory floor. And for the next two years, every two weeks in his mailbox was a paycheck ready for him to cash as he continued to pastor that church. As I mentioned last week, the book of 2 Chronicles is really a grouping of stories about the kings of Judah, and they're put together in a way to teach God's people a lesson. First and second kings is really a a grouping of stories telling us how God's people have a tendency to find themselves in trouble. First and second chronicles is really about telling God's people how to get out of trouble. And that's usually what will explain any differences in the way they tell stories about different people. With that in mind, we come to this story about King Abijah. Now, We don't know a lot about him. Kings and Chronicles don't really tell us much about him or what he did. What we really have is just this short story about a battle or a war that he has with the northern kingdom and with King Jeroboam. And the the, the idea or the theme of the story is this, facing an unsolvable problem. Abijah faced an unsolvable problem. Problem, Or if you could put it a different way, it is a story about the need for salvation. 
And in this story, we learn three things about that need for salvation or how that unsolvable problem is solved. And so I have three points for you this morning. Number one, we find out that salvation is not a matter of temperament. Salvation is not a matter of temperament. Now, the Bible immediately tells us that Abijah only has a three-year reign. The likelihood is, is that he was one of the older men to become king of Judah. Second king tells us a little bit more about him. Here we find out about his mother. Why is this important? Because it kind of gives us a profile of who this man was. We find out that he has a good mom, and we know that he had a wicked father. And what we find out is this is a man who really wasn't outright rebellious against God, but really wasn't devoted to him. Now, after telling us about it, we are told about how the northern kingdom, King Jeroboam, gathers a very, very large army for the time, 800,000 men. And he gathers it, and, and the text is very clear about the fact that Jeroboam is being aggressive. His desire is to invade. This isn't a conflict where somebody did something. Jeroboam is greedy for territory, greedy for money, thinks that Abijah is weak. And we're told that Abijah can only gather uh, 400,000 men. So his army, is, so Jeroboam has him outnumbered two to one. And the text even tells us that Jeroboam's men, his army, is full of what? Valiant men. The idea there is these are battle-hardened individuals. So not only is he outnumbered, but Jeroboam's army is experienced. Now the text then tells us where the, that a custom is observed. It's a custom where uh, a leader of a military or a nation is going to get in a position where he is going to try and convince the other army that, they're, that, that what they're doing is pointless. We actually still do this. I called up uh, one of the military experts I know this week, and I said, is this, is this something we still do? And they said, well, actually, yeah. Before our army will go into a town or go and invade a place, one of the things they often do is they'll drop leaflets into that city saying, hey, you know what, we're coming, and it really wouldn't be worth your while to oppose us. Or we'll send in radio waves, and we'll, we'll send in messages saying, you really should just put your arms down and just let us come through because it, you're just going to get decimated. All right, so this is a long uh, military tradition of doing this. So Abijah gets up, and his desire is to uh, make sure or try to convince Jeroboam and his army that what they're doing is pointless. So he stands on this mountain and he begins to speak to them and he makes two points or two arguments, one which is correct and the other one which isn't. The first argument, he says, you're foolish for doing this because God chose me as king of Judah. And he describes that arrangement as a covenant of salt. The idea is, is that it's a preserved covenant. It's not something that's simply going to rot away. It's not something that's going to change no matter the outcome of a battle. It doesn't go away in time. It doesn't change over the course of a generation. It's absolutely permanent. So his argument is their actions, being aggressive like they were being, this is foolish and futile because God had declared that David's children would be the rightful kings of his people. Now his second argument to Jeroboam, he says, Jeroboam, the only reason you beat my father was because my father was young and soft. The only reason you were able to drive him out of the northern kingdom is because my father didn't have a backbone. My father didn't know what he was doing. 
And what he's answering is the one question or the one statement Jeroboam could make. Look, if this covenant is so solid, why was I able to defeat your father? And, uh, and Abijah's answer is because my father was an idiot. I'm not an idiot. So therefore, you're not going to win. The problem is the Bible tells us that Rehoboam lost for an entirely different reason. The reason God's people lost, the reason Rehoboam lost, was because God was disciplining his people for chasing after idols. It had nothing to do with Rehoboam's temperament, which is what Abijah hammers on. The words he, use here, he uses here are all about his father being naive, soft-hearted, and unable to withstand. It's all temperament. My father just, just couldn't handle it. One of the most famous stories in all of Christianity is the story of Jim Elliot. If you don't know the story, here's a man who decided, him and his friends, they became missionaries, tried to reach a people group, and they died trying to reach a people group who had never heard the gospel. Now, if you do a little bit of reading, you find out that nobody expected Jim Elliot to be a missionary to lose his life trying to preach the gospel to people who had never heard it. In fact, you can read some of the letters his mother wrote describing him as a boy who was rambunctious, rough, completely unable to be disciplined. His mother figured her son was eventually going to end up in jail. But he didn't. He ended up giving his life for the sake of the gospel. Unfortunately, in my time in ministry, I've seen people argue like this. They meet somebody and, and, and they think to themselves, boy, I really didn't get along with that person, or I, I really didn't really kind of connect with that person. I don't know if they're a Christian now, they'll say all the right things. Well, no, no, becoming a Christian is supernatural. And they say, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's for anybody. But they'll say in the same breath, but that guy, I don't know about that guy. That guy's got some problems, some issues. Or on the same note, they'll meet somebody, they'll meet uh, somebody they really like. And you go, oh, that guy was really nice. That guy wrote a really generous check. Or they meet a kid who is uh, very compliant with adults, and they'll say, you know what? At least we know that that child's either on their way or already is a Christian. They focus in on temperament. One of the things we have to be careful of is in our time, and I say that as our society, one of the problems we're facing is there are a lot of people who think that the teachings of the Bible will submit or change according to the temperament of the individual. So basically how they feel, what their personality is, or, or what kind of things they struggle with, they say, well, if the Bible says something contradictory, the Bible has to be the thing that's wrong. But we'll set that aside for a moment and just, just talk about this as people who do submit to the Bible. If we remind ourselves that the salvation then promised to us by faith in Christ is a covenant of salt. Christ is a descendant of David. And that means that, for example, our condition or the conditions of being saved or becoming a Christian don't change based on temperament. So the confident male athlete, the shy teenage girl, they both must put their faith in Christ to be saved. But it also means if you're a Christian, your standing before God, your relationship with God isn't based on your temperament week to week. Does anybody remember what it was like last Sunday? It was nice and sunny. It was warm. And I remarked to Russ, everybody seems to be alive today, chatting with each other, 
everybody's in a good mood. And when the sun is shining and, and things are feeling pretty good, and maybe there's a little pep in your step, you go, God's really good today. God's been really good to me today. And then you have this Sunday. And it's cloudy and it's gray. And you think, eh, maybe life isn't so hot. But the reality is, whether the sun is shining or the sun isn't shining, you're saved by having put your faith in Christ. Your relationship with God is based upon your relationship with Christ. It has nothing to do with how nice the weather is. So number two then this morning is that salvation is not a matter of strength. So not only is it not a matter of temperament, salvation is not a matter of strength. Skip down all the way to verse 19. And here we read a summary of the aftermath of the battle between the two nations. And we're told that Abijah and his army are not only able to chase down Jeroboam and his army out of Judah, they're able to actually gain ground into the northern kingdom. And one of the things the text goes out of its way to note is that one of the places they capture is Bethel in the surrounding area. Now this is significant. And that's because Bethel was the center of the false religion of the northern kingdom. I want you to think about it this way. Before 9-11, Saddam Hussein would make a big deal about his army. Maybe you might remember that. You'd see videos. He would march his army, and he would march these missiles and these tanks. But the pride and joy of the Iraqi army was the Republican Guard. And he would give up, he'd get up and make these speeches, and he would say, death to anybody who tries to invade, because we have the Republican Guard. He made them sound completely and utterly unbeatable. But when we invaded after 9-11, the Republican Guard ended up being nothing more than a speed bump on the way to Baghdad. It was completely and utterly embarrassing. And Abijah taking Bethel was a humiliation. really isn't strategically important. It wasn't really uh, economically important, but it was just a humiliation. Jeroboam had set up this golden calf. He had made this whole system of religion. He got these new priests. He had made claims about its power. And the very center of that worship is taken captive by Abijah who we outnumbered two to one and had more military experience. And then we get two more summaries. The first is that after this happened, Jeroboam never recovers his power in the day of Abi- days of Abijah, meaning the whole country basically became unstable. It's really an, a familiar story because like Jeroboam, other, God is going to use other countries and other leaders later to discipline his children. And just like Jeroboam, they're going to get arrogant and proud, and they're going to say, you know what? We beat them because we're stronger. And God's going to say, you know what? You treat my people with contempt. You try and take their strength away. And so God says, I'm going to take your strength away, and I'm never going to give it back. But then we get a second, a second summary, and that is Abijah grew mighty, that word for strength. Same word for strength that is described as Jeroboam losing. So Jeroboam loses strength. We're told Abijah gains strength. The double usage of the word there is that the the reason for Abijah becoming strong and Jeroboam becoming weak was the same reason. God made it so. And one of the things we note here is this military victory over Jeroboam and this embarrassment of Jeroboam solidifies Abijah. And then what are we told? He goes off and he marries 14 different women. He has many different children. 
And so the idea is that he grew mighty and he ignored the Lord. It's to tell us that here God delivers his people. God uh, comes and and shows that the, the covenant he had made with David is one that is not corruptible. And Abijah is not with the Lord. And like all the other sons of David, he dies. One of the things we should learn every political season, not just the one that we just have, but every political season, is it's very easy for people to think that salvation is a matter of strength. Every politician of every type campaigned this year, four years ago, two years ago on this idea. Give me power and I'll save the country. Or the only hope for the country is if the right people have power. And we take it to heart and we cheer when some people win and we become anxious and afraid when other people lose. And I see this happen in a church. Years ago, I know of a church that received a million dollar donation from one of its members after they had died. We would daydream about that, right? I bet you our trustee board could have that spent within a month and a half. But they got a million-dollar donation. And then they went over the next 10 years, went through one pastor after another. The church split multiple times. You know why? Because every meeting they had was about making sure that money was still there. For them... The church's survival was entirely based on the money in that account. Now you compare that to maybe a little church like this one that has to plead with God to pay their bills and during certain season can't actually pay their bills and then have to plead with God and then they provide and then they rejoice. And you have a church that is based upon the watch care of God. But I tell you, I have preached in many different churches, and I have been over many different parts of this country, and there are a lot of churches who think strength is having the young, hip pastor. I am sorry for your loss. They think their strength is in the big attendance, the right music, the right program. And there's nothing wrong with having any of those things. There's nothing wrong with being strong in any of those areas. The sin is thinking that being strong in that area is how the church is going to survive, how people are going to be saved, how missionaries are going to be supported. Of course, the ultimate example is Christ. He didn't save us through strength, the Bible says. He saved us through weakness, submitting to his Father. The Bible describes him as weak by every measure of the world. And that weakness is then later described in Romans as the power of God. And then we're told, blessed is the meek and blessed are those who mourn. That the real semblance of greatness is being in a servant. That the apex of love is, is, is sacrifice. The Bible even says that, that Jesus found us, showed us grace to be saved when we were dead. I don't think you can get any weaker than dead. We do not contribute an ounce of power to our salvation. Salvation is not about strength. That brings us to number three. Salvation is a matter of grace through faith. Salvation is a matter of grace through faith. Now we come back to the middle of the story, verse 8 to 18, and the rest of Abijah's speech in the battle itself. Now the way the Bible is going to frame this is really interesting. The first thing we note is that Abijah makes this big speech about the difference in worship. 
So Jeroboam sets up this elaborate religious system, has a golden uh, calf, and has its own priesthood. Now, one of the things Abijah highlights here is if you wanted to be a priest in Jeroboam's system, all you had to do was pay a fee. You had to bring a bull and a handful of goats, and you were in. We were talking about that this morning. You can go online today, and you can become an ordained minister in about 15 minutes and 25 bucks. But that was the idea. Really, it's the idea that those who with influence, those with power, had the ability to become priests. There was no special class, no chosen people. It was just a registration fee. Now, he compares that to the sons of Aaron, chosen by God to serve in that place. And he highlights that in Judea, at the temple, that worship, according to the design of God, is going on as God designed it. And that with Jeroboam, the worship they were doing was just nothing more than a copy of all the things the other nations were doing. But what's interesting is the fact that there are religious ceremonies going on in Judah. The fact that the the things are being performed at the temple is not the reason we're told Abijah wins. But then we come to the next thing. We're told that in this battle, Abijah is completely outflanked. In other words, Abijah's making his speech, Jeroboam moves his army, and from the point of view, now think about this. Jeroboam has two-to-one advantage. He now has the, the, uh, the, the strategic advantage because now he has his army in front of Abijah and behind him. And we're told that Jeroboam's army is significantly more experienced. And in that situation, the Bible tells us Abijah and the people of Judah, God's people, cry out to the Lord and they amplify it by the sound of trumpets. We're given no details except for the Bible telling us that God defeats Jeroboam and Jeroboam and his army run. And that Abijah and his 400,000 men kill 500,000 of Jeroboam's 800,000 men. Then we get to verse 18. Because what it wants to make clear here is this. The men of Judah, God's people prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. It was not religious ceremony. Abijah had just proven he was not a military genius. They relied on the Lord God of their fathers. Now the text here is addressing two problems, two are really kind of objections with people becoming a Christian or being saved. The first is that most people think that salvation comes by the performance of a religious activity. I've said this before, I guarantee you, your unsaved friends, your unsaved family, your unsaved neighbors, they all think this way. They think salvation is a matter of doing religious activities. So going to church, giving some money or talent to a good cause, watching their language, avoiding the really bad sins, and being kind to their dog. For them, that's salvation. Do that, and we're good. Unfortunately, Christians can fall into this too, and they say, well, you know what? I must be a good Christian because I'm really busy doing religious activities. Now, a good Christian should be busy doing religious activities. A good Christian attends church, they give money and talent, they watch their language, they avoid really bad sins, and they're kind to their dog. The failure is to think that we're right with God because we put the time and effort into religious activity. That would be wrong. The second great problem is that we are naturally skeptical. The Bible tells us many times that we do not want to give credit to God. So let me illustrate it this way. I grew up driving in the snow. 
I don't mind it. I even said this morning, I'm sorry that I would prefer the white stuff instead of the rain. But I've driven in it. I grew up driving in it. I, I did my driver's ed in it. All right, I, I did all my miles. I've, I've driven a lot in the snow. Well, a couple of years ago, we were on our way to Grand Island, and it's the worst weather I had ever driven in. The snow was coming down like crazy. The roads were clearly icy. The wind was blowing as it does in Nebraska. And it was just bad to the point that they did close the, the expressway at the exit before or the exit after the one I needed to be at. So we picked up our exchange student. We went back home that evening and we made it. Now, some people would look at that moment and go, you know what? You probably made it. Why? Because you've driven in the snow a lot. And some people would look at me like I was a nut if I said, you know what, the only reason we made it was the Lord's mercy. I had four kids in the car. I had my wife in the car. As many times you're going to tell kids to be quiet, they aren't. I was tense. It was the Lord's mercy. And as Christians, we can get to that point. We become skeptical. We say, you know what, I go to church. I do the right thing. Of course my kids are healthy. Or we might think to ourselves, I go to church, my, my kids are sick, maybe, maybe I offended or angered God in some way. And we we skeptical that he loves us the way he loves us, we're skeptical that he's done what he has done for us. We are naturally resistant to the idea of grace. That God could have sent his son to die for our sins, then later by the spirit, power of the spirit given us the faith to be saved, all because he's kind. And even in the face of all the reasons we give him not to do that, we resist the idea that our salvation is perfectly complete, that it is completely full, that Christ has done everything and we have no need to contribute to it or or the fact that it is not overturned by some failure on our part. We must be brought back again and again to this. Salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We prevail, we are saved by relying on the Lord God of our fathers. So being there in that moment, on that day where he told me that story, my pastor friend, and seeing God's watch care for him was a big reason why years later when I faced my unsolvable problem of losing my job when the church ran out of money, By that experience, I was reminded that the answer was not in me. It was not in my strength. I was going to have to rely on the Lord God of my fathers. And I have shared with you many times in my years here stories about how he saved us again and again. And the salvation of God has always come by grace through faith in him. And it's not only true for our eternal salvation, but we see it is true for all of the unsolvable problems of our lives. It is true for the unsolvable problems of marriage, the unsolvable problems of parenting, of relationships, of jobs, of communities. It is the answer to the unsolvable problems. It is a lesson we need to learn again and again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of this truth. Salvation is not based on how I feel today. Salvation is not based upon what I do today. Salvation is based by your kindness, through me believing that you can save and have saved me through the blood of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.